Hello, everyone. I am Jeffrey Hayes, host of ASRM Today, and this week we are bringing you a special preview episode of the new Fertility and Sterility on-air podcast. This episode was recorded at the 2019 ASRM conference in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and it is the Journal Club Live on Uterine Transplant. But I'll let Dr. Barnhart talk about that more in just a few minutes Please subscribe if you have not already to Fertility and Sterility on air to stay up to date with all things fertility and sterility. So without further delay, here's the episode. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, interactive associate in chief. Welcome to episode number two of Fertility and Sterility on Air. In this episode, we have a special feature where we are replaying a Journal Club Global that was presented live at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine Congress in Philadelphia in 2019. We have an illustrious group of panelists who are discussing the pros and cons and ethics of uterus transplant, reviewing a Views and Reviews article from July 2019. The group, which includes Matt Sprandstrom, Dominic DeZiegler, Rebecca Flicht, David Keith, Michael Putman, and Kathleen O'Neill, discuss very important questions that I hope you'll enjoy. Topics will include human uterus transplant strategies for screening, whether we should be using live or deceased donors, the optimal surgical techniques, and how we can use art strategies to help these women conceive. I hope you enjoy this special feature and this rebroadcast. Hello, everybody. My name is Kurt Barnhart. I'm the Fertility and Sterility Media Editor. And it's my pleasure again to introduce a Journal Club Global. We are in Philadelphia, my hometown, at the um, American Society of Reproductive Medicine Annual Congress. I'm very pleased to have an esteemed colleagues on stage with me. And we're going to be talking about the pros and cons and ethics of uterus transplant based on the fertility and sterility views and reviews from July 2019 entitled Uterus Transplant. Um, I have, uh, going across the stage here, I have Rebecca Flick, I have Matt Sprandstrom, I have um, Michael Putman, I have Kate O'Neill, and uh, Dominic Ziegler, and um, David Keefe, who will all introduce themselves with their affiliations as they feel appropriate as they go through. Um, what we're going to do is go through the views and reviews very briefly, and then we're hopefully going to have an interactive session. And when I mean interactive, I mean interactive with you in the audience, interactive with those of you who are watching us online, uh, and interactive with those of us on the panel. So I'm going to start with uh, Dr. Brandstrom, um, who's going to review uh, the topic that he put together, and then he'll pass it along the line, and we'll hopefully have a discussion. Okay. So I will talk a little about, uh, give an introduction to the uterus transplantation topic, and then I will also review the global results as they were and as they are now. So uterus transplantation is, of course, a uh, treatment for absolute uterine factor infertility, which can be due to that you lack a uterus uh, anatomically or functionally, and there are many causes. Uh, today, when we talk about the patients, we will see that most of the patients that have been transplanted so far have the Meyer-Rokitansky-Kusterhauser syndrome, that is the uterine agenesis syndrome. Um, 
So the field actually started already in year 2000 when the first transplant was done in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and uh, that was uh, not successful. A uterus had be, to be removed after three months. And then the second case was a deceased donor case in uh, Turkey in 2011. That was not either successful. And then we in Sweden started the first uh, formal trial of uterus transplantation, and that was in uh, t 2013. In that trial, we did nine cases. Uh, Seven of those were surgically successful. That means that the graft would stay there and the woman, and this were live donor uterus transplantation, mostly the mothers being the donors. So seven were surgically successful, meaning that the uterus would stay in place and the woman would start to menstruate. And out of these seven women, uh, they started to get embryo transfers after seven months, uh, after 12 months, and Today we have eight babies out of those co cohort and soon nine babies. So six out of seven women uh, delivered healthy babies and some delivered twice. And after that trial we have seen activities in many countries. Uh, there have been, uh, uh, and also live births in most settings. There have been, uh, is a trial in Czech Republic. Uh, with live birth there is a robotic trial in China with a live birth reported in the media. There is a large trial in Dallas with live and deceased donor with several births and there's also birth in, at the Cleveland Clinic. And the first birth from a deceased donor also was a, a, is, is a milestone in this research and that was in, in Sao Paulo in Brazil in 2017. So altogether, uh, there is activity in the world at several places. It's done within clinical scientific trials, and that's very important. We're publishing all the results, both ne negative and positive outcomes. And uh, we try to have this activity in a really regulated way. We have also created a society called International Society of Uterus Transplantation, where we maintain a registry so we can actually look at the global outcome. Thank you. Terrific, that's a very good summary. Uh, anybody have any questions on that? Do we th it, it seems to me that it, um, it's very international. Is that, is that by design or because of politics or why, why are so many countries? No, I think we have uh, been very transparent. We have actually, we and other groups have shared our experience. Uh, uh, both uh, scientifically but also real hands-on-hand. -hand. I have been actually uh, visiting uh, from all over the world to look at the surgeries and get the tricks of the trade. And uh, of course, uh, uh, this society has actually probably helped us to have a global spread and transparency in the field. So I think we have uh, uh, live births from four major continents and there have been actually done transplants in all in all uh, continents in the world except Africa so far. Terrific. That's quite, that's an amazing progress in a short amount of time. Sure. First, I want to congratulate you. Amazing what your team has accomplished. Um, you mentioned in your paper that you had a multidisciplinary team, including psychologists and ethicists. Um, 
Were they part of the team or were they independent of the team? That's my first question. And then the second question is, do you have a data safety monitoring board? Like with a drug trial, new drug, new device, typically you say, all right, there's a point at which we'll stop. And I'm curious, um, did you have such a, a arrangement in your institutional review board? And what, what was the line if you had it? Yeah. So, I mean, we had, a, I mean, the psychologists and the ethicists and so were part of the team in the build-up phase. But important, there were different psychologists later for the donor and assessing the donor and the recipient, so they would be independent. Uh, when you mention the multidisciplinary team, I would say it's gynecologists, reproductive medicine, obstetrician, and transplant surgeons. But uh, I emphasize also introduction. This is a type of transplantation which will stay among the obstetricians, gynecologists, so we actually have to be very active in this field. Yes, we had a data safety monitoring committee, uh, which was a prerequisite. So they had access to all the data online, and they were they had the right to stop the trial if we had adverse events. And we still what have was, that. Was there an arrangement like if one person dies, we're done; two people dies, we're done; three people, you know, was there a predetermined uh, 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 cutoff point or? No, so we had in the initial trial we we could do two, and then we had to have a waiting period for six weeks to see that uh, uh, they were surgically stable and surgically safe in the in the short run. In the second trial, which we do now, is the robotic trial. We don't have that prerequisite because we were so successful in the first case. But of course, I also want to emphasize we keep uh, track on the donors and the recipients for safety and uh, not only short-term and not only medical, also psychologically and, and quality of life, and we monitor them for up to five years because we know this is very important. I'm just curious, again, I don't mean to uh, monopolize, but that first one, it sounds like you had some very serious um, potential complications, big thrombosis, did a thrombectomy. If that had broken loose and caused a PE and somebody died, would you as an individual surgeon have kept going, or would you just say, I'm a surgeon, this happens? I'm just curious how you would have sort of uh, dealt with that, because the same thing is going to come up as more and more programs try to roll this out, uh, and should there be a predetermined uh, um, cut point at which yeah. point we close the study? I think, I mean, that was the role of the, of the safety committee, uh, or as, as I said, to actually stop us, because we know as doctors we can get blind. We are so uh, keen on getting the good results, and of course we know also that there are, the, the patients would actually try to succeed uh, in every way. Uh, when I designed the, the trial, I, I said we have to do a trial of, of uh, several patients because we cannot expect all of the, the outcomes to be fine. But I think if we would have surgical failures with the two first cases, that would probably stop our trial. And I think um, just to kind of add to the discussion, Rebecca Flick, I'm part of the Cleveland Clinic uterus transplant team. Um, I think a lot of the criticisms of early work in uterus transplantation before Dr. Brunstrom's was that it did occur without meticulous preparation, without um, institutional and ethical oversight. And so I think as you built your program, as we built programs in the United States, from the very inception, there were bioethicists that were involved and embedded within the protocols. There were plans in place for follow-up with the IRB 
and the DSMB in order to try to create the safest possible protocols to try to anticipate those scenarios. So I do think that that is very much a part of the active discussions in formulating a clinical trial at this point. I also want to add that our, when we started the trial in 2013, it was after 15 years of research in animal models, doing exactly what you should do by the school book, rodents, domestic species, non-human primates. So our preparations could not actually be better. And it's taken as a master example of translational research, how we should do it, actually. And what I, I, my justification was that, well, after all this research, all this optimization, uh, we should be the group in the world that are best prepared to do this and let us see if it works or not. And if we would not be successful, I think all the whole field would have gone back to the research state for many, many years. It, it raises an interesting dilemma whenever you do something for the first time. You can have an institutional review and a data safety monitoring board, but then any country can do it and anyone else can follow. So even though that one program might have very good rigor, it doesn't stop anyone else from trying. I want to use that as a segue because a lot has been learned from, from this and from others. And in this views and reviews, there are a lot of um, big questions which are addressed. For example, we've now moved from you know, extensive surgery to minimally invasive surgery, which I'm going to ask Dr. Putman to describe sure. a little bit on how that transition has happened. Absolutely. So with the incredible work that the Swedish team did and sharing that with the world, we started to have open procedures that were successful. They had, but they're long. They take a long time. And the main reason is, is everyone here that works with uh, <coughs> taking out the uterus, the deep veins are the real issue because uh, they are close to the ureters, and that's where you see complications occur. They're, uh, branch and they have plexuses. So they're, it's a very delicate skill, you know, technique to be able to do that. And then in the upper part of the uterus, the upper uterine veins that really will go to the, the ovarian, to the ovary, the ovarian veins are much more accessible. So the optimal recommendation was that it get the deep veins on each side and also try to get the uh, high uterine vein without having to remove an ovary because there, there's some questions we'll have and talk about that. So the, from that standpoint, we're trying to look at now, okay, you, you seem to be able to do this. Yes, we have some complications, but not a great deal. Let's, let's look at the robot, because with the robot, you don't have tremor. You, the, you could go down deep in the pelvis. You could do some very delicate dissections. Um, so there's been some studies that have done. The first study was done in China, and they um, actually took out the ovaries. So they took out both ovaries to use the ovarian veins. There's some questions about that. They removed the vagina through a, a non-sterile, uh, I mean, the uterus through a non-sterile vagina. Um, so there were some issues on, on that, but that was uh, a total robotic procedure. And there's a group in India that was using conventional laparoscopy up to a certain point, and then they would open the patient. But they were also taking the ovaries to, to utilize the veins. And that's, a, now from an ethical standpoint, I think that's something we'll, we'll all want to talk about. Um, an issue when you're doing that, the, the um, donors were usually the mothers, and they were 42, 43, 48, so, you know, is it coercive? Is it you know coaxing for 
for your mother to say, yes, I'll take a, give up my ovaries and my daughter can you know, have a child with, her, with my uterus. So there's some issues with that. But it certainly showed that it could be done. And then uh, there's a collaborative uh, program going on right now with Dr. Branchon and uh, a group in France. And so maybe you could kind of tell us how your program is doing right now. Yeah, so we are also now using robotic assisted laparoscopy for the donor surgery for live donor uterus transplantation. But we do it uh, not totally robotically, we do it step by step. So we try to do more and more and, and uh, try to do it in a scientific way because of course even if we, do, we are gynecologists, we do uh, complicated robotic surgery. This is new procedure and we have to learn uh, to, to do this. So we are doing more and more and my prediction is that uh, where robots are available, this will be a total robotic procedure both to take it out from the live donor, but also to put it in uh, a recipient in the future, because that is done now uh, with live donor kidney transplantation and so on. And of course, that big advantage is not the fancy machine, is that actually the patients usually can go home the day after. For those uninitiated like me and many of the audience, can you briefly describe the length of time it takes both to harvest a uterus and actually to implant it, and how you think the robotics are affecting that? Yes, so I mean, in the first trial, it took us 10 to uh, 13 hours to take the uterus out and four hours to put it in, and of course, this is, was a lot longer time than we had predicted. Uh, the, the trials in, in Dallas and in Czech Republic, they, in, the, in the laparotomy, they have reduced the time, and uh, we are also reducing the time in uh, robotic surgery, but not as much as we thought, but that is known from other studies where you introduce robotic surgery. The outcomes which you will actually reduce is uh, blood loss, hospital stay, and then the time, surgical time, may come later, but at a later stage. Terrific. Can I, can I just make a comment? Sure. Um, so I think, like with many of our gynecologic procedures, we're seeing a transition from open surgery to laparoscopy, then to advanced robotics for uterus transplantation. And I think the most interesting part of our discussions right now has to do with which vessels we're going to select for reimplantation of the uterus. And I think a key area where reproductive biologists need to weigh in is the fact that in our quest for faster, less morbid surgeries for the donors, I think you'll see, you know, a around the world, people are taking out ovaries for donors that are in their 40s. Um, so we know from William Parker's data from the Nurses' Health Study, you know, the number needed to harm when you do that is one in eight. That means increased all-cause morbidity in one in eight women who lose their ovaries in their 40s. And so one of the most interesting ethical questions that we're facing right now is as we go towards these faster, less invasive surgeries, what are the risks that we're putting these donors to? And is this the time to re-examine some of those original ethical questions um, that sort of fueled this work in the beginning? So that was kind of the flavor of our discussion in Cleveland when we had the International Society Global Congress this year. And it was, I, I I think it was a very um, energetic meeting. <laughs> right. I think we're still at the very early days right. of this, and there's a lot of feisty discussion. It, it was very exciting. There's this question of non-malfeasance, a double effect, where you're doing something to help one person, yet you may be harming the other person. So it's, it, that's a bit of a quandary. Uh, Baylor, Dallas, we've done the last five of our, our uh, transplants. We did a total of 20, but our last five were totally robotic. And time-wise, I don't think they took really decreased the time. I think they increased the time. But they were also taking out the deep veins. 
as well. So, I mean, dissecting out the deep veins and connecting those besides the upper veins. And it may turn out, we've had two live births with just the upper uterine veins and not using the deep. And it may be in the future that um, people decide that's, that's the way to go because it's going to be faster, that's going to be uh, less complications when you're operating around the ureter. But I think right now the, everybody's still doing just what you're doing. So well, I, I do have to say, I mean, this is a perfect moment to interject that there are living donors and then there are deceased donors, right? So you can have a conversation about what's better, minimally invasive or open for a living donor. But if you want to completely obviate donor risk, then you talk about perhaps a deceased donor model, which is what we've done. That's exactly where I was going to go next to my colleague, um, Kate O'Neill. Please Just go ahead. a technical question for the audience. We're discussing the veins a lot because that is the, the difficult part. The arteries are very easy to dissect. It's the same technique as you use in a radical hysterectomy. So that's no problem for anyone. It's the veins and what veins you should use. So one way to solve this idea of, of harm of a donor is to work with a deceased model. And I know that's been talked about a lot, and I'm going to ask Kate O'Neill to summarize um, the article and her opinions on this subject as well. Thanks, Kurt. So I'm Kate O'Neill. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm the medical director of our uterus transplant program. And I'm going to talk about um, Dr. Um, Barnstrom and Dr. Brandstrom's article that reviewed the advantages and disadvantages of the living and deceased donor. And they did a great job summarizing really the, the, the heart of the matter here in selecting if your donor is going to be a living donor, a deceased donor, or if you're going to use both. So the primary advantages of using the living donor as summarized in the article are one, planning. So, you know, with the Swedish group, they did meticulous planning over a decade long. And the nice advantage of living donors, you can plan things out. You can have the same individuals who are practicing the procedure and have gone through step by step be involved in that procedure. You can coordinate for the recipient and for the donor. You can do it, at, you know, not in the middle of the night on a Saturday, which is, you know, always best. All of us in the operating room know that's that's not where you want to be doing kind of your, your most difficult cases. Um, the other advantage of using living donors is this issue of preoperative assessment. So when you have a deceased donor, a lot of times you're getting that the information about that individual and their health history and their surgical history from their next of kin. And that individual might not know all when the last pap test was and if there was ever an abnormal pap test 10 years ago or if the person had ter multiple terminations in the past that might not be something that they shared with their next of kin and that's information that's all very important um, for assessing how how you know competent a uterus might be for carrying a full-term pregnancy so with the living donor you have the ability to do imaging you can do um, CT you can do MRI you can do hysteroscopy and really assess the quality of the vessels the anatomy um, you can look for anatomic abnormalities like fibroids and things like that so that is one very distinct advantage of the living donor and I think that um, Right now, it's important to just take a step back and note that of the you know 70 around 70 transplants that have been done around the world, about 75% of them have been living donor. So we are still limited in our ability to really compare every element of deceased versus living donor, just because we have our numbers for deceased donors are so much smaller. But I think it will be interesting to see 
once we have, you know, we have the international um, international database and we can start kind of comparing some of these outcomes, is that preoperative assessment valuable? How often are we finding something on CT or MRI of a living donor that is then making that individual no longer useful for or, or not preventing us from proceeding with using them as a living donor? So I think that's been something that's been touted as, as very important and there are ways in which I can think it is very important with respect to the medical history of being able to obtain a full medical history from the individual who has experienced it. But some of the other aspects I think we need to do a lot more investigation and research to figure out, are they really as, as valuable as we think they are? Um, so the preoperative assessment is one of the advantages of the living donor, the surgical timing. Um, there is a if there is some relationship, you know, biological relationship, you might have better immune responses, although we don't, we don't have more information about that yet. Um, the primary advantages of, of the deceased donor are, as Dr. Flick said, you obviate the risk to the living donor. So with a deceased donor, you can take larger vessels, you can take more vagina, you don't have to worry about compromising the flow to an individual's leg or you know, altering their sex life by taking too much vagina because the individual is deceased. So that's one of the, the large um, advantages. The other advantage is of the, um, of the deceased donor is that you some of the psychological stressors for the recipients have you know we always counsel the potential subjects that if there's a uh, some sort of complication to the living donor or some sort of complication with the transplant, there can be feelings of guilt, but, but some of that is, is alleviated when you're using the deceased donor. The last thing that they highlighted in the article, which I think is very important, um, is, and is something that we've discussed a lot at the, both the Baylor meeting and at the international meeting in Cleveland most recently, is this issue of, um, is the issue of supply and demand. So, the question went from being living or deceased, and it seems like as a field we're kind of moving towards both because the fact is the availability of suitable deceased donor organs is really not as robust as we thought it was. When we had initially done some of these estimates, we had thought that we would have, you know, complete, there are a number of very suitable candidates that are that are available and you know organ availability should not be an issue but the more we've kind of dug into that data and looked at some of the national data um, through UNOS the deceased donor um, availability is more scarce than we thought so I think in the end we might end up needing if the demand is what we anticipate it will be just based on kind of what it's been so far at the three active programs we might need both living and and deceased and the other important point that they point out in the article that I think is very essential is we need the data. So we need individuals and centers to do both deceased and living so we can really answer some of these questions with less hand-waving and more actual data. Um, we've talked a lot about ischemic time and that kind of thing, that being longer with the deceased donor, the cold ischemic time being longer, but I think really we need the data. We need more numbers. We need to investigate this in a robust way so we can we can make some real assessments. 
heard I have feedback from our online audience on that topic. So we asked them whether they thought deceased or living donor model, which best balances all the risks and benefits to both the donor and the recipient, is pretty evenly split after listening to you uh, weigh that out. But 60% said deceased is the better model, 40% said living. Any other comments on that? That's a, that's a really a interesting question. Um, so um, it doesn't surprise me that you're going to have a, a shortage of, um, uh, of uh, donors. Um, it, you can see it in every organ. Every There's organ. not enough. Yeah. So um, where are we going with this? I mean, uh, you know, th there may be a point at which there are more programs trying to offer uh, uterine transplant than there are donors. You know, so is there a critical number? I mean, I, in my own institution, you're not allowed to do robotics unless you do 20 robotic cases every other year. And that's sort of considered a minimum, and that's including little cystectomies and, and you know, robotically assisted hysterectomies. But this is real surgery. So what is your sort of optimal model in the ideal world? I know in America it's hard to control this, but we, we could at least think about, you know, sh shouldn't there be kind of a moratorium so there's a few places doing a lot, like Sweden, maybe you, Baylor, not NYU, <laughs> um, but um, because it seems otherwise, it's going to the end game is it's just going to be uh, impossible to get this thing off the ground. I yeah, I think you should you should comment because that's the whole we have, we have looked at, at from a Nordic perspective perspective because you know we have uh, this will probably be on the list for uh, for clinical treatments which will be free of charge for patients so. Uh, we think if we have a population about 25 million and then everybody has access to this, uh, then we would have about 20 cases a year. And I think that would be suitable to keep us in one center. But that is, of course, no economical restrictions. It's free for the, for the patients to get this treatment. I imagine coming up with those numbers is somewhat arbitrary. How do you look at you know, 25 million to 20 cases? But uh, I'm glad you're thinking about it. And I think Kate and I have tried to pin down some numbers about supply and demand. Um, we're not quite ready with those yet, but I can tell you that at all of the centers in the United States, certainly the demand has far exceeded what we could have expected. So, I mean, we published on this in 2017 in the Gray Journal, the first 250 that applied to our trial, but there have probably been at least three times that and more that are calling all the time. So in the United States, we certainly have an epidemic of women who've had a hysterectomy, and I think that there are going to be considerable interest in the United States. We talk a lot about the risk of the uh, donor, for the donor. Uh, do you think that with the experience that's been gained, one could move toward a procedure that would be comparable in terms of risk to a radical hysterectomy? Uh, is it reasonable to uh, put this in perspective for the, uh, the people who do not uh, do transplant per se, but know what the radical hist is? Do you think it's a reasonable assessment? I think, I mean, uh, they're comparable uh, in the radical hysterectomy, you do lymph node dissection, uh, uh, which you don't do in the uterine retrieval, but of course in the uterine retrieval you do more dissection of the deep uterine veins. So still I think the, the uterine retrieval in the live donor is a lot more difficult, but with development of technique and so on, may be similar. I, I wanted to go back to Dr. Keefe's point for a second. I think that in some ways, uterus transplant might mimic kind of what has happened with fetal surgery. So with fetal surgery, you know, at the beginning, it was a lot of a lot of places were interested. A lot of places were starting programs, and it got to that point where the number people were not performing enough to actually feel confident, and so. 
fetal surgery kind of became, it, in some centers, they have high volume, small, smaller number, but high volume. I think uterus transplant might be like that. A lot of this depends on what happens with the funding and you know how it's paid for, I think. So that's an element that you can't really speak to. But I do think that there is a need for um, more programs around the nation and certainly around the world because we're you know at the, we're the only program currently active on the east coast and looking at our numbers about 60% of the people that would qualify could not participate because they could not relocate if you asked me to move to california to participate in some trial regardless of how how desperate i was at this point in my life i could not pick up and move so i think there is need for for more centers. How many more? I don't know. I think that's getting to kind of what Matt's point You mentioned about cost. What is it at your institution? About a million dollars a case? No. Is that what the, the it costs? Cost or charge? That's what I'm learning. Uh, no, no, I mean the, the, hospital, <laughs> the opportunity cost. It, 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 in, in our place, they estimated about one million dollars compared, you know, the, the donor, the recipient, you know, 10 days in the hospital, uh, 12 hours of surgery between oh, 6 and 12 you know, 250 to a million and, and not covered. So is that, was that about what does I your hospital? I think probably around 200 to 250 is closer to what yeah. And it depends yeah. on your yeah. organ acquisition cost, if you're losing, using yeah. a living donor, if you're doing it robotically, if yeah. you're, it, all of that. But I think that's, in the three centers, that's what we've generally. Yeah. And so your hospital's fronting that? Yeah. The hosp our, hosp our institution yeah. supporting our yeah, program. We've had foundation support for the 20 that, that we did, of course. Uh, now I think, People are trying to look at, to see whether or not uh, insurance companies will embrace this and uh, and support it. Did you have to get uh, um, permission to have it covered in in Sweden, or is it just assumed that it would be? Or oh no, I mean, uh, you our hospital has taken. Uh, of, of course, the cost in the Swedish setting is uh, we have calculated that it's about sixty thousand. U.S. dollars, but that's the same for IVF. It's a lot, a lot uh, cheaper in in Sweden. So, uh, so the region and the hospital has taken the decision to put this on on, on the list of, uh, and then it has to be taken by the the whole country first. So I think we're not fortunate to have the the social support that they do in Sweden. But you know, Dr. O'Neill and I are going to Capitol Hill next month to try to do some lobbying, and I think one of the most interesting parts of our conversation now is if and how these procedures may be covered. Are they correction of an anomaly, you know, the way that insurance will sometimes cover that? Is it reconstructive right. surgery? So this is the next part of the dialogue in this country. In France, we had a private institution and private foundation that actually provided the, the cost for the first 10 cases, and then we shall see. But it's likely that it will be covered yeah. by the federal uh, the system if it's successful in france isn't it yeah. is it likely that it will be covered in the is it likely that it will be covered in the future if you are successful in france you have to apply it's still experimental the first 10 cases are covered by this private foundation yeah. and then we have to reassess the numbers and what it is uh, we have to say that in several countries and that includes sweden and france uh, surrogacy is not authorized, so this is the only option for these people, which is important to say even surrogacy is authorized in the U.S. and most states, but um, in many countries, I guess the majority of countries where it is not. Apropos of this, I think the philanthropy will really take off in America when you can do this on um, after uh, gender uh, alignment surgery. How, how far off is that, when you can take a 
XY trans uh, man, uh, or you know, and, and 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 because their philanthropy will take off. We've already had uh, in New York City a number of sort of uh, well-heeled trans uh, donors say, you know, they would be willing to set up a program, uh, which is interesting because we're you know not doing it anyway, but we're happy to refer them. How far away is that? The, the, I think it's hard to comment. We've had a large number of applicants. There's certainly interest, and from a technical perspective, I don't know that it would be that difficult. So I don't have a crystal ball, but I estimate in the next 10 years it will happen. I would think so. And from looking at it from uh, medical ethics, uh, there's no, no reason that that shouldn't go through. So to technically, surgically, no, no challenge? about no challenge. Or, no, no, it's, not a major, <laughs> it's not a major barrier. I think it can be done. Yeah. We don't know. Okay. I mean, it's hand-waving, right? Because right. we haven't done it. So, yeah. you know, they, I had an individual apply to our trial who said, you know, she, she had heard from transplant surgeons that it's easier to operate because there's more space in a man, but we know that the pelvis in a man can be narrower. Yeah. So I, I don't think, like... The problem with applying this immediately to the transgender population, and this is what I've said when, when I've had these individuals apply, is they, the scientific backbone of this was on years and years of animal research done in large part by Dr. Bransom and the Swedish group, and that was not done on, on you know, XX to XY yeah. animals or, you know, macaws or whatever. So yeah. I think that the, we're lacking that scientific background before we can extend it to this group, and you don't want to make that leap. Um, so a lot of this, like, what is it feasible? I mean, conceptually, yes. We were, we're reproductive endocrinologists. We can control the hormones. You know, we can, it, <laughs> we if, can if the gonads are still there, we can control the hormones, and we can, you know, we know you don't need to have active or functioning ovaries in order to carry a pregnancy, but I think some of the other issues that are more nuanced, we don't really know, and so it would be a, a huge leap. And I think this gets back to the really interesting bioethical questions right now, which is why we're, we're very grateful to have two bioethicists in our study, which is this is a very rapidly evolving science. So all these issues are coming up. And I think as we evolve the technical procedure, that's the point at which you do need to revisit those original discussions. Because I think otherwise what can happen is technical modifications occur as we advance, but without the same kind of planning and thoughtfulness that went into the procedure at its inception. I'm going to transition this to something that supposedly we do know about, which is the ART aspects of this. I'm going to ask Dom to summarize the ART strategy right. they used for uterine transplant, and I bet we don't know as much as we think. Let's see. What well, we're learning. I <laughs> part of a team that has done, directed by Jean-Marc Ayubi and with Paul Pietia, who is in the audience, uh, who did the first uh, uterine transplant in France. And we worked on this. It's interesting to know that we have applied for uterine transplantation a knowledge that has uh, emerged from the byproducts of IVF. IVF, if we go back 40 years, was conceived for women whose tubes were blocked or absent. And then it was offered for treating male factors and for donor egg. And actually, it is in Donoreg that we have learned that the uterus does not age, at least in terms of receptivity. This is why now in most uh, live donor uterine transplant, the donor is the mother. 
whether she's menopausal or not, or premenopausal, but the donor is the mother. And this is through donor egg that we have learned that the uterus does not age. There's possibly problems with atherosclerosis of the uterus, but in terms of receptivity, the uterus does not age. The implantation is as, as good as it is in a younger person. Uh, there are some technicalities in terms of uh, uterine transplantation. You sometimes have to do the retrieval in the uh, woman who has a Rokitansky syndrome, uh, transabdominally, this is what Mass has done. Uh, often you can do it vaginally. Uh, you stimulate the ovaries. The ovaries in the Rokitansky syndrome works very well. We even had a case in France uh, of a woman who also has PCOS, and so that we got lots of blastocysts. And uh, then the um, transfer is being performed pretty much like you do in Donnerag, with a, either in the natural cycle uh, or with estradiol and progesterone. So this is a technique that has been possible because of all the things that have been done in IVF. And I participated, I was happy enough to participate in the uterine, International Uterine Transplantation Society in Cleveland, and it reminded me, participating in this meeting, the early days of IVF, when people were coming to meetings and sharing tidbits and, and pieces of information, you do this and you do that, and actually this really made me feel that, donor, that uh, uterine transplantation is the last frontier that we have to conquer. It is the women whose uterus is uh, absent or non-receptive that are the only fraction of patients for whom we can't do anything. So it's a big challenge. I understand there are ethical issues. It's a big challenge. It's work in progress, and probably uh, the future will tell if the surgery can be simplified. It already has been a little bit, and um, it's enthusiastic. I'll throw out the first ethically challenging question, and we can go around the room and, do, and have some more. So if I'm going to go through all this trouble of transplanting a uterus, do I need to implant a um, euploid embryo? Uh, <laughs> do you have another question? <laughs> uh, actually, it's interesting that in France and in Sweden, PGTA, which has been the topic of a previous uh, journal club in this room, PGTA is forbidden. It will make lots of sense, particularly when you have, as in our case, the woman also has PCOS, to actually pick a euploid embryo, because euploid embryos have excellent implantation rate and minimal miscarriage risk. To have to actually pick randomly a blastocyst when you have more than 12 of them uh, without being able to select the right one is a little bit embarrassing and stressing. We do PGTA, uh, and we have done that on all of our patients. We select four high-quality embryos, and they are euploid. Uh, before the patient can enter into our study. We feel like that this gives us a, a faster chance to, 
to pregnancy or to live birth, mainly because uh, we're going to, just what you said, not be putting in an embryo that is going to end up miscarrying and delaying the process. So we feel like that that's worked well for us. We've had four live births now. We have five ongoing pregnancies and probably six, and we have two we're waiting on, and then our last two we haven't done yet. So uh, we feel like that it's a very reasonable thing to do, and it seems to have a really good success for our program. Just, we, just to provide a counter argument, I'll, I'll let Kate go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've thought about this before. Yes, Rebecca and I sometimes share a brain on this topic. Um, we do not do PGTA routinely in our program, and the, the main reason for that is um, most of the patients that apply, I think the median age is about 30, 31. Um, so, and our, our first couple of uh, recipients were under the age of 30, so we really didn't feel like it would necessarily improve their live birth rate um, or reduce their miscarriage rate since the rate of aneuploidy is so much lower in that age, pop, in that age group. Um, and it, in our program, the individuals are paying for IVF. So we give them the information and counsel them as we would any other patient. And if they would like to proceed with pre-implantation genetic testing, which some of them have opted to do, then they do that. Um, but we do not require that as, as part of the trial. You know, I think it's, it's very tempting. And of, of course, in, as in any IVF patient, I would rather put back a euploid embryo than a non-euploid embryo or an untested embryo. It's nice to have that assurance. But I don't think it's necessarily been shown to um, improve outcomes in that younger age group. So we counsel a uterus transplant patient like we counsel another individual going through IVF. You know, I think the issue of cost, I'm sorry, is, is, it's an essential issue in the United States, right? Because in other countries or in some protocols it might be paid for, but in all the trials in the United States, PGTA is not paid for. So is it okay to ask patients who are very desperate to be part of a clinical trial to add that additional $5,000 to the cost of their cycle if it may not actually improve their implantation and pregnancy rates? So we also have chosen not to do it. And just to share our experience in the two embryo transfers that we've performed we have two pregnancies, both pregnant the first time. These women don't have uteri, but they may not have underlying other infertility issues. They're young, best prognosis IVF patients. And you can share your pregnancy rates. You did not do PGTA. No, we don't do PGTA. And of course, I have not looked at the implantation rate per embryo transfer, but our first birth, two births out of nine or ten we have had is at the first single embryo transfer. So. But of course, we have had one case. I think uh, she got pregnant at her eighth or ninth embryo transfer. Then she got one baby, and then she got a second baby at the first embryo transfer after the first baby. You know, it's even apart from the cost issues, you can imagine some real um, medical issues doing PGTA. The Stanford group just came out with a very interesting observational trial, but they compared, compared blastus transfer with and without uh, um, trophectoderm biopsy, and the trophectoderm biopsy uh, embryos were associated with between three and five-fold increase in preeclampsia. And, and that begs the question also, there were a couple of really severe cases of preeclampsia, one forcing an early delivery in your series, and you wonder, you know, this foreign uterus, yeah, you got, um, you know, you got the, um, the immunosuppressant, but is there something funky about trophoblast invasion that's going to set up for preeclampsia? Now you put on top of that PGTA trophectoderm biopsy, 
it might be over the top and create a, a, an unwarranted uh, obstetrical risk uh, well, based on the... We, we have such a small group, but there's a large Chinese uh, study that showed there was no, uh, no detrimental harm to, yeah. the, to the devices. I don't know about how their long term goes. There, there is, in terms of going back and making the analogy with Donna Reck, there is an interesting finding now uh, indicating that transfer of frozen embryos uh, in the natural cycle with a corpus luteum decreases the risk of preeclampsia. And actually, uh, in Matt's uh, case, the, the first cases at least were transferred in the natural cycle. So we have to be aware of that, and it is uh, probably advisable in this, all the women who were transplanted re recur, re return to have regular period to actually do the transfer in a natural cycle for minimizing the risk of preeclampsia. Yeah, so we do all the transfers in, in the natural cycle. Uh, in some cases, they are anovulatory, and we do the HRT cycle. Uh, what is that due to? I mean, there's possibly uh, factors from the corpus luteum, and the one that all think about first is relaxing. Could relaxing that has been postulated to do all kinds of things finally find its home role? <laughs> <laughs> um, while you're all thinking of some great questions, I'm going to turn the mic to see what the audience had in the polls and see if there's anyone in our audience here that would like to stand up and, and uh, contribute. So we've been getting feedback from the audience on some of the discussions tonight, keeping in mind on the cost issue that 75% of our online audience is in the US. We asked them who should pay for uterine transplantation if it's non-experimental. Half of them said it should be on the patient to pay for it. Uh, the other half were divided between insurance and public funding, so most people thinking that it should be the patient. Uh, we asked them if this becomes non-experimental, sort of where is this field going in comparison to other transplantation surgeries. A third felt like it'll be utilized more, a third less, and a third similar. So it seems like as a field we're not really sure where the future of this is going. And then looking at the articles, there were several things that uh, they used to screen who should be eligible for this transplantation, including genetically XX, uh, capability to use your own oocytes, psychologic ability to raise a child, do you have other children, whether they're biologic or not. We asked our audience which of these was most important, and they were split between all of them. So the question is to the expert panel, how do we screen patients, both medically and from a behavioral or a psychologic aspect, to select the right patients for this procedure? Well, we can go through screening real quickly, or we went, sure. I think we are fairly uniform in our screening strategies, actually, from all the programs, what I've heard. I mean, uh, um, we have some, some set data, age, uh, ovarian reserve, and then, of course, psychology. And it's concerning the recipients, it's not that difficult, because they are of young age and so on. I think it's more the screening strategy of the donors, which is most important and which actually is uh, different if the live donors, but also possibly for the deceased donors. Matt, do you want to say a word about CMV discrepancy between the donor and the recipient? Yeah, so uh, CMV, this, this is important for in transplantation that uh, it can be dangerous to, to uh, put a CMV positive organ into a CMV negative uh, recipient. Uh, that is not allowed in, in France, uh, and, but in Sweden it is, because you can actually, of course, the recipient can acquire a CMV infection, uh, 
What you do when you transplant is that you give them prophylaxis for a longer time and you may get a CMV infection later on. Um, so we've had, uh, we have had one case of CMV infection after eight or nine months and uh, that went over with treatment and I think you can have had one also. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, early on. So we haven't transferred embryos because mm. of the concern for CMV activation. Yeah. How about HPV? Um, you know, high-risk HPV. Uh, everybody uh, presumably is exposed at some point to HPV, but the immune system controls it. Um, if somebody had, uh, you know, culpo biopsy, maybe even a leap for um, some high-risk HPV, are they contraindicated as a donor, or you just let them go and just watch the cervix? In no. our trial, an excisional procedure is it um, part of the exclusion. So if they had high-risk HPV, but did not have an excisional procedure. You know, now with the ASCCP guidelines yeah. changing, not that recently, but um, kind of that, if, if that would have been handled that, if you would have been doing it that way by the current guidelines and done an excisional procedure, then the person is not a candidate. Um, but otherwise, like if they've had a culpo, then they can still participate. I think that's one of the challenges with deceased donor where we have so much less information available because um, we may not always know that history, so we're certainly screening for it. And with our biopsies, we're looking for any changes. It is a pretty short duration that the uterus is in, you know, maybe three, four years at the most. But it's something that keeps us up at night with the deceased donors. Do you monitor them closely? Let's say you have a, uh, a deceased donor, and then you find out later she had HPV, she got a leap, but of course it was all over the vagina, now you've got that in there, now she's uh, three years immunosuppressed. Do you do anything differently in terms of monitoring for vaginal carcinoma or uh, other? Yeah, we, we, we haven't gotten into a situation like that yet, but I think that's why we have to really try to take a careful history and thoroughly examine the deceased donors. Well, there is a case, and this was reported in Cleveland also in the Czech trial where they actually had a deceased donor and they saw, they did a colposcopy on the back table mm -hmm. and they saw a lesion and that was a CIN 2 or 3. And of course that was uh, not done, that transplant. That was in Prague. It was in Prague. So I think they were lucky to see that actually because, um, and that is of course the risk, as you said, you, because... You know, in the living donor situation, we do repeated smears uh, with HR, uh, with HPV screening, and and uh, both of, of uh, the recipient and the donor. So, to exclude this. So I think we've just, we've descended into some really specific topics here. We only have a few minutes left. I want to go back big picture. I have Rebecca and David sitting on opposite sides for a reason. I want to give them a couple minutes to summarize in a big picture why we should be doing this and why we should not be doing this. Who would like to go first? Do you go mind ahead. if I go first? Um, so I brought my computer because um, I, I have some results from a mixed method study that we published in the American Journal of Bioethics. And it's a pet peeve of mine, um, with, and to avoid getting political, but that we have conversations about women, their reproductive options, um, and what they can and can't do with their bodies in a room full of people that don't include those women. Um, and so to try to bring their voices back into the discussion, I just want to share with you some of the quotes that came as part of these direct interviews in this mixed methods trial. And this is published, our fellow Elliot Richards, who couldn't be here, and Ruth uh, Farrell, who's our bioethicist, contributed this. Um, so really, when we broke it down with the interviews, it came into three major themes. There was choice. 
There was privacy and there was control. And I think when I give these lectures to different groups, the group that really are the biggest detractors for uterus transplant is us, right? It's the reproductive endocrinologists because we work with gestational carriers all the time. And I would say to those of you that still have misgivings about uterus transplantation, spend some time with two to 500 of these women. Listen to their stories. Um, listen to what their experience has been because the diagnosis of uterine factor infertility is life altering. And from the time you're 16, from the minute that doctor walks into a room, a thousand doors to your future close. Um, the person that you thought you were gonna be, what job you can take, where you can go to school, who or whether you get married, knowing that you may never have children, all of that changes. And so I think um, for those of you that have your reservations, let me just share some of their voices with you. So in describing the aspect of choice, it's my choice, it's my body. If you had to go through what I had to, you would understand, but you didn't. Another participant talked about um, choice and privacy. Um, so a surrogate would potentially be a stranger and there are so many unknowns and a lot of nerve wracking things. So being able to have the opportunity to try to have your own child in control as much as possible about their environment, what you're putting into your body, how you're taking care of everything, it's an amazing opportunity. More on surrogacy. You know, to have someone else carry your child for you, that's a tremendous amount to ask. It's a lot on them. It's a lot on you to be able to do it yourself. That's something that we want. And if I want to do it that for myself, I'd rather do it myself than make someone else do it for me. And then lastly, another one characterized the advantages of uterus transplant like this. To be able to experience birth and the joy that comes with that, the connection, the attachment, the accomplishment. These are just a few things, but I'm sure there are many, many more aspects of how it benefits your self-esteem, your womanhood, how it benefits your perceptions of your own self, because everyone who has this disease, who has this condition that I have, the conversations that I've had, has been about having very low self-esteem in being a woman. It affects our very consciousness and our ability to look at ourselves in the same way that every other woman looks at themselves. So I think that's really powerful. Um, and I think when you speak with these women, that sends a really cogent ar argument up about why we do this work. Um, I think the other argument I would put forth is that this is a highly efficient, highly effective procedure. So, um, you know, to talk about the success in the Swedish group, when we look at the nine patients who were transplanted, the fact that they're almost to nine babies for six women, I think that stands toe-to-toe -to -toe with the success of any other reproductive procedure that we have to offer. I think when you look, and there's more of this data coming on the safety of this for neonates, the safety of it for women who undergo the procedure, you know, the question of safety to donors, I think that the data that we're getting and that we're going to be putting together in these registries is very favorable. Um, and then I think the last thing is really just, we're all scientists, that's why we're here. And I think that having a novel angle to study uterine factor infertility, to look at reproduction, to look at implantation, to look at placentation, these are fascinating windows into those processes that we all can benefit from, that all of our patients can benefit from. So I think those three are really pertinent to me. There is a personal element of the women who have previously had a completely incurable condition. So ICSI 
see was very helpful as a revolution in male factor. This is, as you said, the final frontier, right? And so to find a treatment for those women is essential. I think to think about it as a new angle for research, and I think to think about it as a highly efficacious treatment. Those are my arguments on the pro side. Terrific, thank you. Um, thank you for inviting me here. There's a reason I'm here on the left, because <laughs> I am a libertarian. I'm a complete supporter of your right to do this, completely. I completely, in fact, I admire it. Um, but I'm not gonna actually take that position. Uh, I'm gonna take the position of my patients my loved ones, people I care about, because my patients and my loved ones are the same. Before we jump into that, full disclosure, before I was an OBGYN, I was a psychiatrist. For five years, I practiced psychiatry in an academic setting. And uh, again, in full disclosure, the first cesarean section I did at Yale as an intern uh, was with a guy called Noel McCarthy, God rest his soul, wonderful fellow, um, himself a reproductive endocrinologist. And I was going through the surgery, my first cesarean section. He said, you show up a surprising degree of incompetence, even for a psychiatrist. <laughs> now, I did go on to actually win the prize as the top you know, surgically oriented resident, so I get it. but. Um, uh, going back to the question about my patients, how I would it, it advise, uh, you know, and it is important. I think it was Mark Twain who said, when you find yourself on the side of the majority, it's time to, to pause and reflect. So when we pause and reflect, I just have to imagine myself sitting in my office with my patient. So we got a couple of options. Um, we could do a uterine transplant, we're gonna send you to the best. There's 70 cases, you know, maternal mortality, as you know, is one in 10,000, they've done 70. So they've probably got about 930 before you expect to see somebody die, and that would be 10 times higher than normal. I think most of us would say 10 times higher than normal, that's pretty high, but you guys still have 970 of these before you're even gonna see a mortality that's 10 times higher. So I would really caution you to say the word safe or looking good, you're not gonna know until you're up several thousand, number one. But then what we do know, one group almost lost a leg. So, so you, you must inform the patient, there's a chance that you could get an aneurysm from a fungal infection in that graft and you could lose your leg, you could die, you could get a pulmonary embolism. That's what I'll be telling my patients and uh, anybody that, that, uh, that I'm close enough to share. Um, that uh, the, uh, the, the notion that a patient's um, wishes and hopes are immutable uh, and, and to be uh, respected, that's true. At some level, there is a role for autonomy, but to me, even more compelling is primum non cieri, first no harm. Uh, and I, I don't think I could safely, comfortably say this is a harmless procedure when you've done 70 or 90 or 100 or 1,000 or 2,000. We're not even close. The thought of taking an immunosuppressant, the immune system is very much our friend. To shut it down for three years to somebody that I care about, I would be very, very uncomfortable shutting down the immune system, especially a lot of the, uh, a lot of the patients uh, with uh, congenital uterine problems are only have one kidney. I mean, you know, it's the nephrotoxicity, problem with cancer. Um, you know, these are all real concerns. One of the things a therapist does is they never make the assumption that the patient knows what she wants or he wants. That's the definition of therapy. The patient doesn't know what he or she wants. It's a, it's a major difference between therapy and medicine. In medicine, we know they don't, or they know we don't. In psychiatry, you make the assumption that we, it's all a voyage, and you can meet people where they are and take them where they maybe don't want to go. 
which is to acknowledge. The other thing is that we all sip the Kool-Aid when we go into surgery. It is, you got to imagine, it's, it's infatuating. The, the sense that you can actually save this person. But I would caution you, caution, uh, you know, the, the reasons to, to be wary are not only for the donor and the recipient, but ourselves. Recall your ancestors, Prometheus. Remember, Prometheus was a titan, and he was given fire uh, to, and, 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 and by Zeus, and he gave it uh, behind Zeus's back to mere humans. Uh, and, and that is the beginning of the end. That's the, the, the sort of the beginning of science and technology, many argue. The problem with that is Zeus was angry and tied him to a rock. And he was destined every, every day an eagle would come down and chew out his liver. And the Greeks thought the liver was the seat of the emotions. And, and so every day he'd have his emotions tortured. And then the, the liver would regenerate again. And he'd do the same day in and day out. So the, we have to be careful ourselves that we don't become that person whose emotions are chewed out. I, I just am curious with all you, and I pray to God it never ends up, but what happens when your first patient loses her leg or, or, or dies? And then you're like, whoa, you know, uh, I never heard of somebody losing their leg or dying from surrogacy. I never. Um, I've never heard of really um, dread outcomes like pulmonary emboli from the patient who uses a surrogate. So prime them no chair. First do no harm. Um, meet the patient where she is. Take her where she, sh- she needs to go. But again, God bless you. You know, I, 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 if a patient actually after I do that real work, not, not me who's part of your team, who sip your Kool-Aid, I, I mean a, a true independent uh, um, uh, meeting of the minds, uh, they still want to do it, I'll be sending them to you. There's a problem. When I listen to you, I almost feel convinced. But <laughs> well, we're friends, though. That but, doesn't count. <laughs> but, but there are other unknowns. Epigenetics. You're putting on the same level a baby born from surrogacy, assuming it's authorized, and born from uterine transplant. We don't know that. Yeah, yeah. We don't know that. There are still some unknowns as to whether the epigenetic changes that occur during pregnancy might actually make a difference. So I was not entirely convinced. <laughs> I, I also want to say something because I think I shared some of that perspective at the beginning. Like I would not want to undergo a radical hysterectomy um, to donate my uterus personally. Um, for your daughter? For my daughter. I would not want to do that. I would. Would I want to be a surrogate? I don't know. But I think that gets back to my point, which is that you never know what you would do until you are actually in the person's, in the person's seat. So there are all kinds of things I thought I would never do until here I am, I'm a mom, and now, now I feel differently. Or, you know, here I am, I'm a daughter with a sick parent, and now I feel differently. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to be really careful about and this gets kind of to Rebecca's point also, we have to be really careful about like what we would recommend for ourselves or for our loved ones is not necessarily what's right for the person sitting in front of you. So I think you have to do your best to tell, to be non-biased and present all of the information and help people make an informed decision, knowing that they're never going to be able to appreciate all of the risks. They're never going to be able to, there are unknowns that we can't even describe to them yet, but do our best to present that with the limited information we know and have them make that educated decision. What do you answer with many patients ask the following, Doc, what would you do? 
you know, you're in my shoes, born with no uterus, um, surrogate, you know, send her down to Florida or go to the many, the many states where it's just routine or go through this, what would you do? I had a mentor tell me, don't ever let the patient do that I know, to you. I, I agree with you, mentor. Yeah, I but, completely but, agree. But, but, but I'm just curious, though. I'm many just curious. Many of these women, I, I would never, I say it's a completely personal decision. My job is to give you all the information and then you make the best decision that you can for yourself. Yeah, and okay, I'm, we I'm, get that. So it's not the patient, it's me asking you, what would you do? I'm curious. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I am pro-adoption, I'm pro-surrogacy, and I'm pro-uterus transplant. I always say my, I was, I'm the product of a woman who was adopted, so I'm very grateful that it's, that it's an option for people. But I am all for increasing the choice. So provide them with the information, and if women don't want it, and people won't pay for it, then we don't have to worry about if it should be or shouldn't be done because it won't be done. But if women want it and other payers and people see the value in it, then it will move forward and it will continue. Let me continue I, down I the line because we're a little on time and give everyone a final comment. We'll get to we'll let you have one too. Really? You have one of, give me your final thoughts. Uh, well, <clears throat> to, if, to the surgery itself and, and robotic surgery, I had um, a friend of mine who's in the business world and she tries to increase productivity and help things with the business. And so she looked at what I was telling her about. So she said, okay, so you've got some problems down below here. You've got some things going on in those veins, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, well, up above there, those are pretty easy, aren't they? I said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you maybe just did those and didn't bother this, you might not have the issues there, you think? Well, we don't know. She says, well, that's how we look at it in business, you know. Let's, uh, let's find the best model that works. It works with safety, productivity, and um, I said, I can't argue with you on that, but, the, but science may. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think uh, you have a good point, and, and of course, I think we have to be aware of, we have little, very little data on the safety and efficiency and so on, uterus transplantation. Uh, but we have the chance with the International Registry actually to, to get a complete picture. Because I think the problem also with the gestation surrogacy, which is not an alternative for our uh, people in Sweden and so on, is that you don't really have the big cohorts also. Because of course there are maternal sickness and, and morbidity and probably mortality also with gestation surrogacy. So what we have to do is to give, give the best information we get, can get to the patients and we should try to overestimate the risks. I think that is very important in the beginning instead of underestimating them and then they have to take their the decision themselves. And we also should tell them that this is still in a very experimental phase and it's far from clinical routine. Dr. Brandstrom, has, has the reception or questions that you've gotten, the comments you've gotten about uterus transplant evolved? Has, was it initially more kind of, were the reproductive endocrinologists more reticent and now there's more support or do you feel like it's stable? No, I think in Sweden we've had support uh, all along uh, the t uh, time, uh, but, I, but I think that's because we don't have an alternative and I think it was also because our project was so much discussed in the press for many, many years. So people and also the, also the doctors were prepared when we entered the scene. 
Rebecca, I think you got the last word. Oh, just how I like it. <laughs> um, so I think this is a fascinating discussion, and thank you. I think we learn so much from people who may not necessarily agree with our approach. Um, I think one thing I did mean to say is that look around this room, look at this panel. We're addressing uterine factor infertility on a global scale. And if you look at the maps of gestational surrogacy around the world, we are the anomaly that we have this to offer here. So in, addre in addressing uterine factor infertility, I think we have to think about the whole world and all of the millions of women that we, you know, we hope to serve with this being one of their options. Um, I do agree with Kate that uh, you know we're all in women's health. I think we are very familiar with counseling on a variety of different options. It's not my goal to sway anyone in any particular direction, but I think if we can offer this as something that at least now has some accumulated data behind it, it may better serve those women. I actually dug up this fertility and sterility um, that they did for the 40-year anniversary of IVF, and they reminded me that to get to Louise Brown and the other birth that accompanied her a year later, there were um, 250 patients, 457 cycles, 112 embryo transfers, five clinical pregnancies to get to those two live births. So that's a 1.8% live birth rate per embryo transfer. So I think we're all doing better than that now. <laughs> But I think if you compare that to the current efficacy of clinical trials, what Dr. Bronstrom shared from his, we've now done seven deceased donors, five have been successful. I think that we're starting to see the potential of what we can do with this, and I think it's a very strong start. Um, so I think we're all just very excited to see where this leads. This has been fabulous. This is exactly what I envisioned a journal club would be. I want to thank Fertility and Sterility for putting this views and reviews together. I want to thank the opportunity to come and do this on stage at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine. This was a fantastic discussion. Thank you, colleagues. Again, I'm Kurt Barnhart, the media editor, and I want to say good morning, good night, or good evening to wherever you are in the world watching us. And uh, we'll see you again at our next journal club. Thank you very much. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.